we're in, as I said earlier, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It's my favorite chapter in the book of Revelation because it's about the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see in this chapter this morning, Revelation 19, we're going to see Jesus returned to earth as he promised he would do. It's an amazing chapter. And you know, the second coming of Christ is an is a incredibly important topic within the scriptures. So much so that 1,845 times in Old Testament and New Testament, there's references to the second coming of Christ to earth. 318 references just in the New Testament to the second coming of Christ. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament talk about the second coming of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, that great epistle of Paul, he talks about it after every chapter of all five chapters. He he ends the chapters talking about the return of Jesus Christ. There's one prophecy throughout, for every one prophecy about the first coming of Christ in the Bible, there's eight about the second coming of Christ in the Bible. Listen to this one. 62% of Americans in the United States believe in the bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, question, the obvious question is, are 62% of, of the United States citizens ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so. But we're going to see this morning is this glorious return of Jesus Christ to this world. So, Titus 2, chapter 2, verse 13 says, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption uh, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that, the, listen to this, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons of the, of the redemption of our body. You know what those verses are saying? It's saying all of creation is looking forward to this future event of Jesus coming back and answering our prayers for millennials of thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. You know, there's an inscription in our Capitol building in Washington, D.C., you know, the, the, the builder of the building, of our Capitol building, the dome building in Washington, D.C., actually inscribed this into the building. It says, there's one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. Inscription on our Capitol building. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. All of creation we're just, is just groaning for this future return of Jesus Christ to make things right and to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, establishing his reign upon the earth again. So we're going to look at this great chapter now. Hey, by the way, if you need Bibles, I should come forward with Bibles. They could give you a Bible if you need it. We study, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire New Testament on Sunday mornings. So Revelation 19, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. All right, let's jump right in. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, now question, after what things? After the Great Tribulation. After all we've studied for the last several weeks of the fact that after the rapture of the church, we're going to go into a seven-year tribulation period, the world is, and we're going to be in heaven after the rapture, but the world is going to go through seven 
Remember, seven seals of God's trumpet, and then seven trumpets of God's judgment, and then seven bowls of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth, right? And the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, and he's going to be a world leader, not only uh, governmentally, but religiously. And he's going to have a false prophet set up an image of himself in the temple, and the world is going to go to hell, and the chaos in the world is going to be like the world has never seen. It, Jesus says it's like a time the world has never seen. And, if it's, it, and it's going to be the worst tribulation the world's ever seen as the Antichrist takes over and the judgment of God begins. But now we're, at, we're to the end. Praise God, by the way. We're through all that. We're after these things. After these things now. And heaven's about to erupt in worship and praise because they know that Christ is now finally going to come to the world and set up his kingdom on earth and make everything right. And so now we're going to see the eruption of heaven in worship because it's after these things of the great tribulation. And he said, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true. They're righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And who's the great harlot? It was the false religious system. Remember we talked about that last week. The religious Babylon that was bringing everybody into the worship of the Antichrist. The great harlot committing spiritual adultery because of her. Who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. That's talking about the martyrdom, the killing of Christians by the false religious system. And then it says this. It says, in a second time, verse 3, they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne. And they were saying, Amen. And again, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard as a word, the voice of the great multitude and a sound of many waters. And as a sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, What are they saying again? Fourth time. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now, interesting, the word hallelujah there only mentioned that word four times in the New Testament. Only mention of the word hallelujah in the New Testament is here in these verses in Revelation 19. Interesting. Now, it's, it's, a word, it's a word that's used in Psalms, it's used in the Old Testament, and New Testament that's reserved only for this place as heaven erupts in the worship of Jesus Christ and his second coming as they're awaiting now after these things, the second coming of Christ. Interesting word, hallelujah. It's two words. It's halal, which is praise, and yah, which is shortened views, uh, version of Yahweh. So what does it mean? Praise Yahweh. And so four times, heaven's saying, praise God, Jesus is returning. Praise God, he's coming back to the earth to set up his kingdom here, here and make everything right. Praise God, he's returning to wipe out the Antichrist and the false prophet and the false religious system. Praise God, he's answering the prayers of his people. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Interesting too. I was thinking back to my spiritual heritage when I came to Christ 40 years ago. And there was a, I'm dating myself here, but this is back in the 70s. There was a song we always used to sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Some of you are old like me and remember that song, right? 
And we just sing that, that word over and over and over again, hallelujah. And then you start going in a little chorus saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And I, 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 was, I was studying about heaven, giving hallelujah to Jesus. I did a rewind 40 years back to sing with a bunch of teenagers just singing, hallelujah, praise God. Another interesting thing about this word hallelujah, it's a universal word. It's a word that no matter what language you go to, you know how you say it? Hallelujah. No, no matter if it's Spanish, you go to Mexico, you go to South America, when they say the word hallelujah, you know how they say it? Hallelujah. You go to France, you know how they say hallelujah? Hallelujah. And it's almost like God in his sovereignty caused this word to be a universal word that no matter what country, what language you're in, you're going to say it the same because we're all going to say it the same when we get to heaven and we're singing hallelujah at the second coming of Christ. Hallelujah. Kind of reminds me too when I was in seminary. (laughs) When I was in seminary, in in Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California back in the 80s, one of my good friends was Kent Norell. Kent Norell was in graduate school with me and he had a tradition at the end of every semester what he would do is he lived right on campus, this old house on campus, and, he, and he, would, he would, in the third story of his house, he'd open up these big old windows, and he'd put his speakers that were about this high. I mean, these were, were, were strong speakers. And he'd put it in the third story window, and he would blare out all over campus the handles Messiah. says, hallelujah, 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 like this. And we would all be singing as we were walking through campus after the finals were over. Hallelujah, praise God. No more all-nighters like the red list last week. No more tests, no more stress, no more failing classes. We're hallelujah. And I was thinking of that. I was thinking that was just a small little portion of how I'm going to feel when I get to heaven after these things. And I'm singing hallelujah like that. It's over. Antichrist is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. The false religious system is going to be done. The, the beast is going to be done with his rule upon the earth. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. Hallelujah. And we're going to be in heaven declaring that. Amen? That's, that's, our, that's, our, that's our future, church. Singing hallelujah multiple times as Jesus comes back to the earth. Hallelujah. Amen? And then it goes on, verse 7. Let us rejoice. And be glad. And give glory to him. Give glory to Jesus. Now look at this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her. And by the way, who's the bride? It's us. The church. Who's the groom? It's Jesus. He's the groom. He loves us as the groom. And he said to me, write or go back to verse 8. And it was given to him to clothe herself, clothe the bride in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, this angel says to John, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And I fell at his feet. John falls at this angel's feet now to worship the angel. And the angel says to John, don't do that. That didn't work out real good for Lucifer, getting the rest of the people worshiping Lucifer. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Hey, John, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now mentioned a couple times in here is 
the beginning of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is going to initiate what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the picture that's being painted here is the church. We, the church, we're his bride. And Jesus pictures us now in this marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride, and we're dressed. And what are we dressed with? Fine linen, bright, clean, and righteousness. Now, I don't like this translation this time here because I like the King James translation better because and I think it's more accurate to the Greek. It's saying, as we're bright and we're clean with this fine linen, the clean linen is the righteousness of the saints in the King James Version. I think that's a better translation because what is our righteousness based on? Is it based on our acts and our works? No, Isaiah tells us that our best righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. So how do we get our righteousness? Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God says the way we get our righteousness is not our deeds, it's the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Isaiah talks about this also. The verse I already quoted from Isaiah 64.6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Another version says filthy rags. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities are like the wind taking us away. But here's the good news. Isaiah 62.1.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks herself with a garland, and as a bride, there's the imagery of us being a bride again, adorns herself with her jewels. Here's what happens. The moment you bend your knee to Christ, the moment you receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord, Jesus takes your sin and he nails it to the cross. Colossians says he disarms the principalities of hell at the cross and he takes your sin, takes it on himself at the cross, and then he clothes you with his righteousness. Again, God made him who knew no sin be sin on our behalf on the cross, that we now become the righteousness of God, and we're clothed with this righteousness. It's the best deal you ever get. If you know Pastor John at all, you know I like good deals. I'm Dutch. I, like, I love great deals. This watch I'm wearing right here, it's a citizen watch. I was at my favorite store, Costless, and it was, I don't know if it was marked wrong or what was going on, but it's a $200 watch, and it was marked at $36 or something like that, and it was a 20% off day. I got it for 28 bucks. I, I was smiling the rest of the day. We go, yeah, <laughs> it might have been mismarked, but that's a good deal right there, man. Oh, wow. I love great deals. But you know the best deal I've ever gotten? was February 1978 in my Young Life Leader station wagon where I finally got what Jesus did for me on the cross. I understood fully for the first time that he died for me. He died for me. And if I just confessed him as my Lord, 
received him. I could become a child of his. And I could be forgiven. And I could be saved. And I remember bending my knee in my heart and saying, Jesus, come in my life. Forgive this sinner. And he did. And the guilt, whoo, gone. And the forgiveness, whoo, came. Amazing grace. And the Holy Spirit, whoo, filled my life. And I was clothed with his righteousness. And the first time in my life ever, I was right with God. Because Jesus clothed me with his righteousness. In Jude chapter, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, it talks about this, actually 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, and now and forever. And the church says, amen. Amen, church. Listen, another beautiful thing about the scenery we're getting right as Christ's return of the marriage supper of the Lamb is it pictures us as the one that Jesus supremely loves. What does a husband do on his wedding day? He loves his bride. And listen, the Jewish culture at the time was interesting because the way they did marriage, a little bit different than us today, some similarities, but a little bit different. The way they did marriage was they, they had a year of betrothal. That's like our engagement today. And if you got married to somebody, what you did was for a whole year before you got married, you prepared. You were, and you were legally married by that, but the marriage wasn't consummated yet, but you were in the betrothal period for a year. And what the, what the groom would do for a year is he would go back to his parents' house, his parents' land, and he'd build an extension on his parents' house, and he'd prepare for the bride to come and to be that. That, that was their home on the family land, right extended from their parents' house. What did Jesus do when he left this earth? I go, prepare a place for you. And then, then the wedding day would come. And in the Jewish culture, what they would do then is the groom on that day of the wedding day, he would come at any time. They, they didn't, the bride never knew what the time would be for the wedding ceremony. It was a surprise. Can you imagine that, ladies? You don't even know the time of your own wedding. You're just waiting for the groom to show up and knock on the door. Okay, it's time. Again, a picture of the return of Christ. He's going to come at his time. And, and it's interesting, too, what's interesting is they'd have the ceremony, and then after the ceremony, there'd be a huge supper. Such a huge supper, it would last for a week. They had a week reception feast party for a week. And then, that, then it would be cons- the, it's consummated and the wedding's done. But the marriage supper was a big deal. And here's what Jesus is going to do. The picture is this, is, is, is when he returns... We're out of the betrothal period. He's prepared for everything for us. And then at the, his return, he's going to be married to us, the bride. And then, man, and then for the whole thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, I think it's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a celebration. Jesus has established his reign on earth, and we're going to celebrate that. And the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. He's restoring all of creation back to order. And it's not going to be a democracy. It's going to be a theocracy because the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to reign with a rod of iron, and he's going to make it right. And I say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Let's get her done. 
And that's what we, our future is right there, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's the other cool thing. He's going to begin the marriage supper of the Lamb with communion. Do you know that? He says that in the Gospels. He says in Matthew 26, 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now imagine that. Millions of believers from all time gathered together, probably around Jerusalem in Israel, filling up all of the Mideast. And we're going to start this celebration of Christ's reign on earth with him distributing communion and worshiping with us. I don't know about you, I love communion. I love the grace that I experience when I remember that the blood of Jesus, that juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ shed for my sins. I love, as we partake of the bread, remember that's a symbol of Jesus' body crushed for my iniquity, pierced through for my transgressions. And we're going to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross with Jesus himself at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we begin his kingdom here on earth in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be awesome. And then it goes on in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now notice, heaven opens for Jesus. There was another time heaven opened for Jesus. Acts chapter 1. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it said this, and after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Jesus out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, heaven opened, will come through heaven in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So Jesus left on a cloud, he's coming on a cloud. Interesting, and he's coming on a white horse. That's interesting too, because Roman generals, when they would come in in victory to gain a new colony for Rome, they always came in in a victorious way with a white stallion. And that's how Jesus is coming back. You know why that's important? Because the first time Jesus came, he came to conquer sin. And he came to be a suffering servant to conquer sin by dying on a cross for our sins. I already said it, but he came giving up his equality with God in the very nature of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, becoming obedient to death, to death on a cross. He came as a suffering servant to conquer sin the first time. But the second time he's coming, he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming to conquer the Antichrist and the forces of hell on earth. And he's coming as a conquering king. First time he came as a suffering servant. Second time he's coming as a conquering king. He's coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he's coming, we're going to see, waging war to conquer and to conquer Satan himself. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat upon us called faithful and true. Isn't that true about Jesus? faithful. The Bible says even when we're faithless, he's faithful because he cannot deny himself. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I can say amen to that. He was faithful yesterday. He's faithful today. He's, he'll be faithful for the rest of eternity. And not only that, he's true. What does that mean? He's true to his promises. Anything he promises in this book, he's true to. He's not like a man. Man's fickle. Man will tell you one thing, you know, one day and another thing another day. Man will say, I'll do this, and they don't do it. That's not true Jesus. He's faithful, and he's true. And in his righteousness, Jesus will judge and wage war. He's coming as a conquering king, and his eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. 
And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And notice, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? Well, there's two interpretations. Either his robe is dipped in blood because of the war that he's waging. We're going to see later that he's going to, he's going to with the sword of his mouth, he's going to destroy 200 million troops, and blood is going to flow as high as the bridles of horses for 200 square miles. So maybe that's why his robe is dipped in blood. Or it could be just going back to the cross. His robe is dipped in blood because of what he did on the cross by his blood for our sins. His robe is dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Again, John in in this gospel said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, Word, there's logos in the Greek. It means the communication. Jesus is the communication of God. If you want to know anything about God, just study Jesus. He's the Word. He's the communication. He's the logos. One time he said to Philip, hey, in seeing me, you're seeing the Father. Just look at me and I'll communicate God to you is what Jesus said. That's what I love about Jesus. Any questions about God, just look at Jesus. He's the word of God. He's the communication of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Jesus on white horses. Now who are these armies in heaven? Who are these armies in heaven that are going to come back on white horses? It's us! <laughs> this would be awesome. We're coming back on stallions, white horses. Giddy up, cowboy. We're going to go for it. And we're going to be with him on white horses, establishing his reign upon the earth and conquering with him. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Again, the conquering king, the almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. And what? Now, interesting. His robe will say, King of kings, Lord of lords. And then somehow emblazoned on his very thigh will be King of kings, Lord of lords. Can you say tattoo? I don't know, maybe it is. It's right on his side. It's going to say, right on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Okay, I'm sorry. Parents, forgive me if your kids want to get a a tattoo. But somehow it's on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen? That's who our Jesus is. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's coming back with a rod to wage war. Came the first time to die. He came the first time to be judged by wicked men. He's coming the second time to judge wicked men. That's what he's doing. And and the verbiage there is to wage war. Reminds me of a scene from Braveheart. Remember when he's all blew it out in the face, and he comes on his, his, his horse, and everybody's kind of chicken to fight, you know, this, this army and everything else, and he comes out, and he gives this great speech about victory and freedom, like that, and then, and then, and then he says in Braveheart, he was asked, well, what are you doing here? Because he was acting kind of like this. He said, I've come here to pick a fight, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. I've come here to pick a fight with the world and the devil and the antichrist and the false religious system and this false prophet. They are going to be history. I've come to pick a fight. He's come to wage war. He's waging war. And notice how he wages war here. And I saw an angel standing up in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice 
saying to all the birds which apply men heaven, come, assemble to the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and men and slaves, and small and great. And then he says, and I saw the beast. Who's the beast? It's the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth, that's the ten horns, that is the ten nation confederacy of the ten kings of the Roman, resurrected Roman Empire that's, that's basically under the authority and the power of the Antichrist. And interesting, these are the, this is the army that's assembled to try to take on Jesus Christ in the armies of heaven. The ten nations and the Antichrist and his false religious system and his governmental system. And it says this, the flesh of mighty, we'll go back to verse 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against Jesus, who sat upon the horse against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him, here's the false prophet, the false religious leader, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who re- received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped uh, the Antichrist image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword. Interesting. How do you get the victory? With the sword coming from his mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, we know earlier from the book of Revelation, there's going to be an army of 200 million troops. And they're all going to be arrayed in this valley of Megiddo. That's Armageddon. And this, this, this valley of Megiddo is 200 square miles. I've been there three times, three different trips to Israel. And I remember one of the last times I was there, you're looking up on this little hill over this whole huge plain. And I asked the, 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 the tour guide we had, who was Jewish, historian, archaeologist, I said, and he didn't know this part of the book of Revelation, but I asked him, how big is this plain? And he told me, well, first of all, Napoleon called this the greatest battlefield in all the world because of its size and its magnitude. And he says, well, it's about 200 square miles. And we're told earlier in the book of Revelation that when Jesus wins this battle, the blood of horses will flow to the, or the blood of these, these armies will flow to the height of the bridal's horses for 200 square miles, which is the size of this battlefield. And he's going to do it by one way. Jesus, the way he wins his battle is just one way. From the sword that comes forth from his mouth. Do you see that? It's just his word. And what he's going to do when he comes back is the sword of his word is going to come forth from his mouth. And I don't know what he's going to say. I'm looking forward to hearing it though. And the word that comes from his mouth is going to give him the victory. I want you to see this because you know what? Jesus wants us to be victorious too. In the battles we face, he wants us to win. We're told in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, run the race in such a way that you may win. How do we win the battles that we face? The same way Jesus won his battles, by God's word being hidden in our heart. How could a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to thy word. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When Jesus was attacked at the beginning of his public ministry, after he did 40 days of fasting and prayer, how did he win against the temptations of the devil that was trying to take him out? He said three times, the word, again, coming forth from his mouth, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quoted scripture because he knew scripture to the point that he had it memorized that he could quote God's word back to the back 
battles instead of the devil himself that was trying to get him to be defeated. And if we're going to win in the battles that we face, we've got to be in the Word. And the Word's got to be in us. And that's why we do so many Bible studies around here. Because we want you to have in your DNA, spiritually, the Word of God hidden in your heart. We want you to be reading God's Word. We want you to be meditating on God's Word. We want you to be studying God's Word. We want you to be learning God's Word. We want you to be memorizing God's Word because that's a key to victory. Just as Jesus won his battles by it is written, word coming forth from his mouth, we're going to win our battles as we quote God's Word in the face of Satan and his demonic forces that want us to fall. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In any battle you face, you need to go in equipped with God's word. This is what equips us for righteousness. It equips us to have victory. It equips us to win. The word sets us free in the first place, doesn't it? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I love 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, talking about this very thing of the importance of of God's word. Put it up on the screen. It says this. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong. Why are they strong? Because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome what? The evil one. By God's word abiding in you. That's why I think every scripture now should only learn and study God's word. Um, excuse me, every Christian should not only learn and study God's word, every Christian should memorize God's word too. It's very important. Our staff, every Friday morning, before we begin our office day on Friday morning, our pastoral staff, we are in Pastor John's office around the conference table and we're drilling each other on scripture memory. We memorize a verse or two every week because I want my staff and I want myself to be hiding God's word in our heart so when we face spiritual warfare as pastoral staff, we're going to be filled with God's word, and we're going to use God's word in the battles that we face. It's a key. It's a key to victory. Having God's word memorized will give you victory in battles. And here's the good news. God wants you to win. He wants to be victorious. He wants you to win in your marriages. He wants you to win with your parenting and your kids. He wants you to win in the temptations you face. He wants you to win at work in your witness. He wants you to win so that when you end your day each day, you could say, hey, today was a good day. I've run the race in such a way to win. Today was a day that I got some victories. Yeah, we're going to have some struggles. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. But as a whole, God wants us to win. And he's given us the sword of his spirit, the word of God, to help us win. Kids love my office my church office, because when the kids come in my office, they look over in the corner and they see about 15 swords. And there's big swords, there's like a Braveheart sword, and there's little swords like daggers, and they're all over the, parents, it's okay, I don't let them, you know, stab them. So it's, it's, but when they come in, I show, show them my swords. And every time I've talked through the book of Ephesians, for some reason we talk about the sword of the Spirit and the victory we have through God's word, someone gives me a, a new sword. I haven't, I got 15 swords in there. I haven't bought one of them. They've all been just kind of donated to Pastor John. And it's fun because when I'm studying the Word of God, preparing to teach you all, a lot of times I'm studying in my office, I'm reading, reading, and I look back in the corner and I see the swords. I'm like this, I'm going, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm giving people in our church swords to win in the battles that they face through God's Word. 
How do we overcome the evil one? By the word of God abiding in us. The word of God richly abiding in us. And then we're going to win. So church, here's the good news. We're on the winning side. We're on the winning side. And if you choose to live for Christ, the best is yet to come. Because he's coming back after the rapture, after the seven years of great tribulation, he's coming back on a white horse, and we're coming back with him on white horses, and we're going to win. And I don't know about you, but I like to win. I like to win at everything. I like to win in golf. I like to win in, I, I even like to win when I play a Heidi in backgammon. I get so ticked when she beats me all the time in backgammon. I just like to win. But the thing I like to win in the most is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. I like to win against this one that wants to kill, steal, and destroy me. I like to have victory in Jesus. And ultimately, that's our destiny. That's our future. I'm doing a U-turn Bible study on Tuesday mornings now. We just started a new series uh, by one of my favorite preachers. His name is Tony Evans. Great African-American, great teacher of God's word. And he's got a new series. It's actually called U-turns. So I thought appropriate, U-turns. I'm going to bring the U-turns to u turn and so Tuesday mornings, we just watch a video and then we discuss it. And we just started it last Tuesday morning. And it's interesting because the very first, very first video is of Deuteronomy 30, which is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, where Moses stands before God's people. And he's talking to God's people about, hey, you've got a choice to make. Are you going to go back to your idolatry? Are you going to go back to the world? Are you going to go back to false religion? Or are you going to follow the covenant God that loves you and will be faithful to you no matter what? And then he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses to God's people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So what did Moses say? Choose life. God's people, choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. In church, we all got a choice to make every day. What are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the world or are we going to choose the word? Are we going to choose the one that wants to kill, steal, and destroy us? Or are we going to choose the one that said, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. Are we going to choose blessing? Are we going to choose cursing? Are we going to choose life? Or are we going to choose death? And especially with these last days, I think getting closer, my word to you is just like Moses. Church! My word to myself is just like Moses. Choose life. And you know what? The tag part of that verse is this. It's not only important for you to choose God and choose God's ways and to choose Jesus and to choose to follow him and his kingdom and his righteousness. It's not only important for you. It's important for your descendants. You know, I'm a dad with four grown-up kids and uh, our first grandkid came uh, three years ago. And the more I get older, the more I see I want to leave a legacy to my kids and to my future grandkids that Pop-Hop chose life, that Pop-Hop chose blessing instead of cursing, life instead of death. And I want to pass that on to them because I want that legacy of blessing to go through the generations. And church, 
I want that for all of us. Church, let's choose Jesus. Let's choose blessing. Let's choose life and life abundantly. Let's not choose the world. Let's not choose the flesh. Let's not choose the devil. Let's not choose all the sin that's out there. Let's choose Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word reminds us of the victory that we're going to have in Jesus one day as we come and we set up his kingdom with him on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, in the meantime, help us to be people that are choosing Jesus. Help us to be people that are choosing every day to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness so you can add all things unto us. And help us to have victory upon victory, God. Help us to be people of your word, too, and people of your spirit. We know that it's not by our might nor by our power that we're going to win these battles. It's by your spirit and by your word, too, God. There's victory in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would man up or woman up again of committing ourselves to be people that are sitting under the teaching of God's word on a regular weekly or bi-weekly basis where we have a commitment to sit under the teaching of your words because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. May we, we recommit too, Lord, to be people that are students of your word, that spend uh, daily time in your word, God, that begin our days and end our days in your word, Lord. Help us to be people that treasure your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you, Lord. Lord, I just thank you so much for the power that comes from your spirit and from your word, God. And I pray that even even this morning as we're praying right now, just fill us afresh, Lord. Fill us afresh with your spirit, God. We need your help. We need that helper of the Holy Spirit to help us in the battles that we face. And I pray for people that might be here this morning that are in the midst of spiritual warfare, even right now. Maybe some spiritual warfare with their kids. Maybe some spiritual warfare with their marriages. Maybe some spiritual warfare at work. I pray, maybe some spiritual warfare for sin they're dealing with or battles with addiction or temptation. I pray, God, that you give them, even this week, the power of your spirit and the power of your word to get victories in those areas, even this week, Lord. Break chains through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, Lord. I pray for victory this week for every person here that just submits to Jesus and your spirit and your power and your word, God. Thank you that we don't have to do this alone. It's not by our will. It's not by our resolutions. It's not by anything we do. It's not what we do in the flesh. It's by the power of your spirit. And so we ask for more of that this morning. More of Jesus, less of us. And we, we, we're like John, we want to be like John the Baptist that says, Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Thank you, Father, as we put Jesus in that place of increasing in our lives and our flesh in the place, in ourselves in the place of decreasing, that's where the power is. So we submit to that. We submit to God. We resist the devil and we know he will flee from us. We stand on your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful and you are true. You promise us these things of victory and you're going to come through for us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that, God. And we look forward to the future. The best is yet to come. We're going to be with you, establishing your reign upon earth. And we look forward to that, Lord. In the meantime, help us to keep fighting the good fight, finishing the course, 
in keeping our faith, Lord. Give us strength, Father, and we pray these things now in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.